Well, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. We're beginning a new summer series today, which will be Hebrews chapter 11. I am going to read a few verses from chapter 11, and then a few verses from chapter 12. And then each Sunday over the next several weeks, uh, one of our pastors is going to take one of the characters that are highlighted here in Hebrews 11 and unpack the narrative of their life and the faith that they had, the faith that the Lord gave them, and then the faith that the Lord commended them for. So let's open now the Word of God, Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not not be made perfect. And therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. On August 30, 1947, The Saturday Evening Post had a Norman Rockwell print, and the name of the print was titled, Going and Coming. The top panel of of the picture is a family, mom and dad, four children, all young, a grandma in the back seat. They're in the family truckster heading for a day away, and there is thrill and anticipation and joy on the faces of all. They're anticipating a day away, a summer day, a summer vacation. It's a road trip. But then in the panel below, that was the going. There's the coming. And the coming is a different picture. It's the same car, and it's the same people. But it's a darker picture. The children that had their heads out the window are now slunched over, exhausted. The mom looks absolutely miserable. Like, why did we even do this? The father, who had a smile on his face and was sitting upright with his hands on the steering wheel, looks like he's doing everything he can just to stay awake. And the only person that looks the same is the grandma. She almost looks as if she never even got out of the car. (laughs) Stable, strong. The only reason we know she got out of the car is she's holding a souvenir, which is a plant. What a picture. Summer's here. The road trips are upon us. You can almost, in seeing that picture, hear the children on the way there asking, are we what? There yet. And on the way back in the picture titled, Coming, you almost hear the father asking the same question. (laughs) My children don't ask, are we there yet? They ask a different question. The question they ask is, where are we on the mirror? The reason they ask that question is because before Christine and I had children, we were with another family on a mission trip. And their children, little at the time, suddenly from the back seat began to ask the question, Mommy, where are we on the mirror? Daddy, where are we on the mirror? 
Christina and I were in the middle seat and we didn't understand the question. So we asked the father, what does it mean? His name was Abraham. Abraham said, well, children can't tell time. So if you say 15 minutes or, or two hours, they don't know the difference. So we've taught them that the starting point on the rearview mirror, the left side is the beginning. And the far right side of the rearview mirror is the end. Where are we on the mirror? We point. Some trips, it goes pretty fast. And some trips, it goes a lot slower. So our children to this day, daddy, mommy, where are we on the mirror? As we travel this life towards an eternal home, we're somewhere on a mirror. We're on a journey. And the journey is something that we, we enjoy. We like taking trips, but it is also in reality a hardship. It can be very, very dif difficult. 13 years after the August 30th post Norman Rockwell painting, John Steinbeck began on a journey. The noted author, a famous American author, many of you know him very well, I've read his stuff, began to write a book based on a journey that he was going to take. And it was a journey to travel across our nation. He was living in New York at the time, and he was burdened by the fact that he no longer knew the country that he was writing about. He wanted to go on a journey. He wanted to go on a journey of discovery. Rich, famous, well-known, he had discovered something about his own self that he was not content with, and he wrote this. I discovered that I did not know my own country. I, an American writer writing about America, was working from memory. And the memory is at best a faulty, warpy reservoir. I had not heard the speech of America, smelled the grass and trees and sewage, seen its hills and waters, its colors and quality of light. I knew the changes only from books and newspapers. But more than this, I had not felt the country for 25 years. In short, I was writing of something I did not know about. And it seems to me that in a so-called writer, this is criminal. My memories were distorted by 25 intervening years. So he left in a truck with a camper on back and a dog named Charlie. And the book is titled Travels with Charlie. For four months, he drove across the United States in disguise. Nobody ever recognized who he was. And what he wrote about is beautiful and painful prophetic, provocative. It's a good summer read. It's not very long, not very thick, but very interesting. The very last sentence he wrote in this book goes like this. I do know this. The big and mysterious America is bigger than I thought and more mysterious. I wonder, as believers in Jesus Christ, if over time, God gets bigger or smaller. I wonder if over time, as we learn more about him, he becomes more familiar or more mysterious. I wonder if over time, like 25 years, we lose a sense of the awe and wonder, even when the exact opposite should be happening as his word is unfolded for us. 
We, as his people, are on a journey. We are on a journey individually and corporately and even universally. What I mean by that is we as individuals who believe in Jesus are on a road somewhere on that mirror. As a church, as a corporate body, we're somewhere on that mirror. We are a church that's 25 years old. Morgan Yates, just before the service, was talking to me about a church he was recently in that's over a thousand years old, somewhere in the mirror, still not home. And universally, we are the church, a church of all time. And as the church, we are on a journey, a journey that is being led by the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And on this journey, there's so much to see, so much to experience, so much beauty and so much joy, but also so much heartache and pain. And this morning, I'm just going to simply begin to lay a foundation for what is here for us in Hebrews 11. As these people, God's commended ones, are on a journey. And the way I want to unpack it is simply three words. I want to talk about the cloud. I want to talk about the champion. And I want to talk about the cross. So let's talk first about the cloud of witnesses. Go to chapter 12, the last section that I read this morning. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, the, the author of this letter, really it's a preacher preaching. This was a sermon. We don't know who it was. You can speculate, but I'm not, I'm not going to this morning. We don't know who it was, but we know whoever it was, was carried along by the Holy Spirit, bringing a message of hope and encouragement to a people that was scattered, a people that was in fear of deep persecution. So the preacher gives them this wonderful list of saints, of men and women who make up this cloud of witnesses who are on a journey, a journey that required faith. Now let's look again to the definition of faith as the preacher of Hebrews gives it to us. Go to 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. This is important. In each case, the people individually or the nation of Israel also spoken of here were a people that could not see all that perhaps they wanted to see. A people that God gave incredible instruction to, clear at one level that this is what I want you to do. Abraham, go to a nation that I will show you. He didn't give him the map. He didn't say this is where it's going to end. He simply called him by faith to lead his people. It required faith. The task that the Lord was calling them to was difficult to understand and impossible to accomplish in and of their own strength. They knew the specifics of what they were to do to a point, but faith was required. Let's look at the list. And we're going to unpack these in more detail each Sunday. But Noah, Noah is called by God to build an ark. The specifics of what the ark is to look like were given to Noah. But he was building it before it was raining. And he was being mocked by people as he built it. Yet day in and day out, 
coming and going. Noah went and slung the hammer. He built this ark, which took a long, long time. Even family didn't understand what's happening. Friends beginning to distance himself. Abraham, I mentioned already, Abraham is called to lead his people to a place. Abraham was confident of that call. Can you imagine that there were any people who wondered if he was crazy? Can you imagine even if there were any family members saying, where are we going? Are we there yet? Sarah. Sarah was old. She could no longer imagine being pregnant. Oh, I'm sure she had longed to for so long. But when she's told that she is going to be with child, she cannot see that reality coming true. She can only see an old body that cannot conceive. Men and women in this text who couldn't see the end result, but God gave them enough to see that he's worth trusting. The people of Israel, look with me at verse 29, 11, 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, the same were drowned. You've heard the story, but I want you to picture it. This people of God, persecuted by the Egyptians, brutal slavery, have now been led out by Moses. And they've gotten to a place where they've been celebrating their freedom when suddenly they're on a shore against a huge body of water when the army, the most powerful army in the world is coming at them and they know what's going to happen. They're going to be slaughtered. And then what takes place? Moses praying to God and the Lord does what only the Lord can do. The walls of water begin to go up. The path is there for them to cross on dry land. Okay, imagine just for a moment what it must have felt like as a grandmother going with your grandchildren with these walls of water on both sides. How high up did they go? What could they see right there against them? Imagine moms taking your little ones hand in hand, perhaps holding a child that's still nursing. You're moving through, knowing the army's coming behind you. And there God faithfully holds the walls of water up until they get to the other side. But we know the story. Eventually the faith is gone and they begin to complain. We were better off under the reign of that army, under the reign of that king. Soon they'll, they'll find themselves against another wall. And this is a wall called Jericho. And the Lord is going to tell them again and again, I am giving you this land. I'm going to conquer this people. But how does he do it? His instructions? March around the city. March around the city. Do you think if you were part of that army or part of those sending soldiers to the front, that that would be a good idea? We're going to march around the city. What's going to happen? Don't really know, but we're going to do what God said. It required faith. And just as the walls went up, divided across the Red Sea, this wall came tumbling down. And time after time, the walls of doubt in this people would collapse and they would believe again. But it wouldn't be long before the walls of doubt would rise again. That's the journey. That's the temptation, as Paul said beautifully before we prayed. 
The temptation is for us to fix our eyes on the things we can see. And the things that we can't see or understand tend to give us doubt. The people receiving this word for the first time were tempted to no longer believe that God could do what God said. And this preacher is reminding them, look what he has done. Look at these heroes of the faith. They were commended for the faith that they had. The Lord individually and corporately showed himself to this people that they would know. But as they journeyed, I want you to see this because it's very important. And this is going to set the foundation for our whole next year as a church celebrating our 25th anniversary. They saw themselves as strangers and aliens. They saw themselves that way as individuals and as a corporate body. Look with me at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Do you feel like a stranger and an exile? There are many things that we encounter individually that make us feel like we're strangers and aliens. When our bodies become littered with disease, it's a sign that we were created for something very different. When relationships get broken and torn up, we know that it was not meant to be that way. Corporately, as we think about our nation, well, we're a long ways away from 1947 and even 1960. Do you feel exiled? Do you have a sense as a believer that things that even a nation once had the decent understanding of a common morality, do you sense that it's just drifting away so fast? You do, I know you do. But the Lord, in our concern, in our despair, in this painful reality of living this side of heaven, somewhere on the mirror, he reveals to us again and again, it's going to be okay. Be encouraged. I am still on my throne. I am leading you. I am with you. I will never forsake you. But when we can't see clearly the way in which he is manifesting that reality, we're tempted to be short-sighted. We are tempted to focus on the circumstances around us as opposed to trusting the one who is absolutely in control. Instead of fixing our eyes on him, we fix them on ourselves or on other people. We need each other. The preacher of this text says, let us not give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you say the day approaching. But I want you to see something very important. This cloud of witnesses, the encouragement that they bring to us, this cloud of witnesses is not where we are to focus. 
is this, this person preaches this wonderful text of encouragement. He moves on to give instructions as to where the eyes are to be focused. And they're not on Abraham or Noah or Sarah or Moses or Rahab, but upon the true champion. The commended ones are not the champions. There's one champion, and his name is Jesus. Look with me again at verse 2 of chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, not just that he was a historical figure, but you have believed and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. It is because at some point in your life, he made it known that he is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And whether you were little, like at VBS, or older, like a a woman who came to faith two weeks ago from this body, he's the founder of your faith. He is the one who began that work in you. The passage tells us so. Looking to Jesus, the founder, that's grace, my friends. He did not save you because of anything inside you. He did not save you because he counted up the days that you had on this earth or will have on this earth and a few more outnumbered, the the good outnumbered the bad. That's not how it works. He founded your faith. At some point in your journey with Christ, there was a starting point on that mirror. It began. For some of you, it's been a long, long journey and a lot of years. And it encourages me to see you here still trusting in Jesus, turning to Jesus. For some of you, it's new. That starting point isn't that old, but you're still on that journey. For some, it might even be today. Even as you begin to ask the question, well, where am I on that mirror? Do I have a relationship with Christ? Jesus is the founder of our faith. But not only the founder, what does the preacher go on to say next? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is finishing actively what he has started. He who began a good work in you is bringing that work to completion. What does it mean? It means for all who are in Christ, you are being made more and more and more like Jesus. And what that means is as you look at the mirror, where are you in the mirror? You can see the progress. But God's definition and description of that progress is often very different than ours. So often it's the circumstances in our life that are hard along the journey that make us wonder, that make us doubt. But there the Lord is moving. And what he's doing is he's perfecting true faith. And he is perfecting that true faith in you. And what he's calling you and me to focus on is not our faithfulness, but his. He is the one doing this work from beginning to end in your life. Now we participate in this sanctification, which is what it's called. We are part of it. 
What does that mean? We'll go up in the text just a little bit more. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, I want to focus on the word us. This is not an individual race. This is a race for all believers. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we to run? With what? Endurance. Why? Because it's a long race. I'm not a runner. I once was a runner. But I don't run now. I admire people who do. Their diligence. My daughter was a runner. My son is a runner. And each time at the end of the season, they have a banquet, they show pictures of people running. I've never seen a pretty picture of a person running. (laughs) They're impressive because you see the muscles flexed and and toned and tight. But their faces look terrible. Why? Because running is hard. It's exhausting. And when they're running, whether it's a sprint and they're going all out for 10, 12, 20, or 30 seconds, or whether it's a long race that lasts several minutes, there is this exertion that's being given and the pain is on their face. My friends, the work of the Spirit in our life is not one that simply simply brings ease. It is His presence with us we're in the, when we are in the midst of a very long and difficult journey. But he's faithful. Our eyes, I want to remind us, are not to be on the ones that are commended. And our eyes here actually aren't to be laid upon our sin and struggles. We're to lay those things aside. But our eyes are to be fixed in one place. And that is on Jesus Christ. That statement is true from the beginning to the end. and will be the truth for all eternity. But there's one aspect, finally, one aspect that I want you to think about before we leave. In thinking about Jesus and looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, this preacher says to us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus Christ, the things we've called him today, friend, comforter, king. Jesus Christ had a journey. He's eternal. He has always existed. But on the mirror of salvation, there was a moment in which the Father sent him to this earth incarnate. And Jesus was born a baby. Jesus, this baby, was born fully human, fully God, that he might experience all that we know as people, that he might never sin, though tempted constantly. That his righteousness might be what covers our unrighteousness. Jesus Christ walked upon this earth 33 years. And the destination the whole time was towards this place called the skull. 
It was toward the place where he would go in obedience to his father. And there he would be crucified, dead, and buried. We are told by this preacher to fix our eyes on that one. That one who endured that journey all the way to the place where he was killed. So that for all who trusted his work on the cross, we would have salvation forever. Our eyes are to be fixed on that one. We need to fix our eyes on the champion and on his cross. But this is very important. As we imagine Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and as we consider that great act of love and sacrifice that we might live forever, we must remember that on that cross, just before he died, he said, it is finished. And when he died, when he hung there limp, when the soldiers were surprised that he was already dead and they speared him in the side and the mixture of blood and water came out, signifying a burst heart, his dead, limp body was taken down. And that body was placed in a tomb. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death, as we sang earlier, was crushed to death. And the reason I'm saying this is because when we look at Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, looking at him on the cross, we must remember he is no longer there. He is no longer on the cross. He is reigning as our king. And the reason that is important is because when we see the symbol of a cross and Christ on it, we can be reminded of his death, and we should be. But we must remember he's no longer there. He's reigning. How do we know? Because the disciples who wrote much of the word of God watched him going. They watched this man, Jesus, ascend into heaven. They watched him going. And they cling to the promise that he's coming. He's coming again. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord right now. He's Lord for all eternity. Where are you on the mirror? Lord Jesus, Thank you for your holy word. And thank you for your holy church. It's holy because you are holy. And it's holy because you are the head. And we thank you that we belong to you. And we belong to one another. And so Lord, as we hear these profound words of truth from this wonderful little letter. As we think about meditating upon these in the days and weeks to come. Fix our eyes on you. Fix our eyes on the cross. Let us see what you accomplished there and let us know that you are no longer there. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen.